Hi there, and welcome to Nowscast, brought to you by Nows Group, an international management consultancy. I'm your host, Ari Sharp, and in this series of Nowscast, we're looking at some of the projects we've undertaken at Nows over the past few years. You'll get to meet the clients we've worked with and the Nows consultants who supported them to meet some of their biggest challenges. Today, we're looking at RMIT University, which wanted to understand more about demand for skills in future so we could offer the right mix of courses today. As we go, you'll hear about some of the gaps with existing data sets and how more sophisticated sources of information laid the groundwork for cutting-edge analysis and a game-changing dashboard that let decision-makers have key information at their fingertips. Joining me is Eloise Boyd, the Director of Market Intelligence and Proposition at RMIT, and Peter Ellis, the NAUS Chief Data Scientist who led the project. Let's get into it. Eloise Boyd, welcome to NASCAST. Thanks for having me. And Peter Ellis, welcome to NASCAST. G'day, thanks. It's great to be here. Eloise, if I can start with you, we know that RMIT is a global university of technology and design, and you offer qualifications in a wide range of disciplines in Australia as well as in Vietnam and Europe. Can you tell us a bit about how you measured market demand when developing new courses and training products? How did you anticipate the needs of future students? So I think it's important to remember we were working across different silos of RMIT, and so for what happened, what was happening uh, on in you know on onshore in Australia was a little bit different to what we might have done in Vietnam or in some of our other offerings. Um, but basically, you know, we'd have academics who, with their various subject matter expertise, may suggest or might have a. a you know, see a demand from a peak body and through their connections and, and industry relationships, define what the needs were going to be for a certain market. And then we had marketing assessments and, and uh, market intelligence information coming through, identifying where we thought skills gaps and where we thought opportunities were for different program offerings. And there was often quite a big disconnect in between those two things. Um, and I think what we were trying to do throughout this process was bring those things together in a way that all those stakeholders could utilise, you know, disparate data sources to make decisions um, about what market demand would be available. So um, we may use job ad information to determine how many, you know, how, how much demand is out there in a labour market. We may use um, uh, you know, information from the Department of, of Education and skills to say this is the current size of that offering in that market and then look at a variety of other digital uh, resources to determine, you know, is there or is there not demand for a particular program? Peter, if I can bring you in, can we talk a bit about the information needs in the circumstances that RMIT was facing? What are the key questions that could be resolved with data? And can you tell us what data sets you drew from and what set them apart from the public data released by the Bureau of Statistics? When you think about any problem like this, things reduce down to a few basic questions like what do our potential customers want? You know, what are our competitors doing and what are we particularly good at? And so it's worth saying that even though the attempt with this project was going to be to tie together a range of disparate tools and data sources, bits of analysis that RMIT were using, we weren't trying to answer all of those equally. It was really a focus on the what, what are the potential customers of RMIT want and to a certain extent, you know, what's the competition out there doing? And so one way of looking at that is like you, you look at the skills market in a in a traditional supply and demand sort of perspective. So we, we know a fair bit about the supply side of skills because we know who is generating it. We know how many 
apprenticeships there are, who is going through the vet training, who is going through university training, and exactly what subjects they're studying, because all of that is collected through administrative data sources, um, uh, in, including the ones that Eloise mentioned, so the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, collect stuff from the universities, NCVR collects it from the vet training providers and so forth. So we, we, we know what is generating that. We also know, if you like, the number of current people who are employed, which is almost like that's the equilibrium bit of the market where the supply meets demand, how many people have actually got jobs. And so the cornerstone here is the ABS labour force survey, and that's got to be the heart of any analysis. And we use it a lot in this tool. You can combine it with the census to get really good detailed estimates of things that a survey can't cover, or you can combine it with macroeconomic forecasts to get future forecasts of how many jobs and so on are there going to be. But that really just tells you, well, who is who? where does supply currently meet demand, that equilibrium point, if you like. So the other side of the equation is the demand from the, the employers in particular. So if you look at what we're all trying to do in this, it's really about trying to find out what people need to do to flourish in their careers and what work employers want their workers to be able to do so that RMIT can target training marketing to employers for that. And so what the employers want but isn't currently being realised becomes key to this. And this is where in this project we really relied heavily on um, a, a job adverts data source that's been collected by a firm called uh, Burning Glass Technologies. So for a number of years now they've been systematically collecting this data in multiple countries and it's really just been a game changer for understanding the um, the labour market. It's, they're basically collecting the full text of tens of millions of job ads around the world and they're classifying them using machine learning techniques into classifications of what occupation is the job in, what uh, industry is the employer in, and really critically detail that you're never going to get from any other source, like what are the actual skills that the employer is asking for? Can you have a machine read the text and say, oh yes, they're asking for whether it's communication skills or Microsoft Excel or must be able to ride a horse. It's there in the full text of the jobs. And understanding that skills data gives us an amazing insight that's just never been possible before, um, before we had this sort of granular data. And so, Peter, you've got access to this rich data set. Can you tell us what did you do next to make sense of it and present it to decision makers? When I personally first came into this project, there was already a vision in place, which I think had come from Eloise and some of her, her colleagues and um, some of the, the NAUS education specialists who've been talking to them. And I mean, I think I could simply describe that as like the, the key bit of the vision was sort of a scatter plot in which the individual points were particular markets that you might target training to. And the, the uh, so they might be occupations or they might be skills you can train people in. And then the idea was that we would have uh, different metrics, which could be the different axes on this plot. And they might be something that represents uh, how difficult is it to fill jobs for this, or how long does a job advert have to be out there, or how fast is this particular market growing? And so right from the start, the, this vision it really dictated this idea that, okay, we're going to need an organising principle of what these um, markets are to target at. And so like we knew very quickly from discussion that people were thinking of, they're probably going to be occupations. So we're thinking of 
targeting this at like accountants or accountancy firms or but there might be other ways of breaking it down so that was one unifying principle and the other was we're clearly going to need to calculate in a really simple way a bunch of metrics which we can have for each one of those um, those different markets if you like and from that a lot of stuff flowed through so technically it meant that the build process when we got into it was going to have two really quite large technical components. We're going to need to pre-calculate all of these metrics for all of the different markets. Then secondly, we're going to need a really powerful, flexible tool for putting it in front of uh, the right decision makers. But at a um, more, if you like, project management or people level, one of the things that was implied from this was that we could see that there's a reasonably clear vision. You know, people had sketched it out on a whiteboard. This is what we want. But we could also tell there's going to be a lot of hiccups down the road, and maybe we'll talk about them later. We want to have a process whereby we can build something quite quickly and then iteratively get a lot of feedback from it on a sort of like a, a weekly sprint cycle, if you like. And so maybe we'll talk a bit about that later. But uh, like we, we are really keen on delivering working software quickly so that we could see what it actually looks like when you translate this vision into something that's on a computer screen and see if that's useful or not and what that means for the rest of the project. Following on from that, you could see that the scope that we'd identified in the initial visioning piece was quite mixed and it was a, sort of a mixture between um, business to business targeting and then also uh, upskilling students in what careers would might be trending um, in a current market and then also trying to understand and, and re refine and revise existing uh, program um, curriculum softwares as well. So I think for even from our point of view, we wanted it to be uh, everything and a silver bullet to do all those things. And the iterative approach, uh, working through those use cases and those business questions was really critical in trying to refine it down to something that can actually answer, you know, the questions it's intended to rather than getting all of that scope creep as well. And so Eloise, the work that that, that you and, and Nels had done sort of came together in the form of a dashboard and you were working uh, along the way and pulling it together. And what was the response like when you put it up to senior management and how's it being used now? I think everyone was really pleased to see it being used because I think everyone's mind is focused on on making sure that we have got the right uh, product offerings and the product program offerings in market to make sure that it is meeting the needs of the skills changes that are happening, but also recognising that we did need to build that capability internally and so you know we can keep using consultants and we can keep doing those things but this is something you know pr uh, program health checks and, and and ensuring that we're meeting the obligations of ourselves as a public institution to offer something that where you know graduates are going to find employment and we're going to make sure that it's fit for purpose for them it's the right fit and context and it's going to also meet the needs of academics in in you know defining and developing the curriculum that they do so well um, I think they were pleased to see us being able to use something that was data driven uh, more than anything, but consistency and capability building in-house for us to be able to scale that. I think that was what um, really helped get the cut through. And I guess being able to, you know, train other users across the university and see that work cropping up, you see the snips of it and you see the data coming from it and you start to see this now dashboard referenced as something that is an input in it as a part of any kind of market assessment that we do now. And I think that's been uh, one of the great successes of this. And what's been the outcome then for RMIT from this new approach to informing course development? 
I guess some of the outcomes are a more consistent approach. Um, I think that we're able to um, utilise the data and expedite the assessments that we're doing. We're not having to spend so much time in the gathering stage. We can do more of the, uh, the analytics sort of uh, more quickly. Um, and I think it's also building the maturity. And I think what we're seeing from that is better questions that are coming as a result of that. And as a result, we're working to refine the dashboard as it is to make it more fit for purpose because we've had experience using it. And we're now either you know, able to really say, what are we trying to get out of it? Um, and, and, you know, as I mentioned, we're also now using it as a standard practice as part of our market assessments as an input um, into all the new program developments, but also the targeting that we're, that we're looking to do for our audiences to understand what the labour market, what uh, industries are calling for uh, to make sure that we're meeting, you know, the needs of employers the, the, and the needs of graduates coming out as well. We've worked with quite a few organisations to help them use data more effectively. What are the keys to success in projects like these? I would say the first key is to have a really clear idea of the decisions that the data is going to inform. And that's something that in this case was really hands down solved right from the beginning because um, RMIT had a really clear idea of exactly what decisions they needed and they knew that data was available, new data was available to solve it. And um, and I think they had a, a great vision of how to do that. So that that's a real a success indicator, which is not always present. The second thing I would say is probably being open to the possibility that the problem that really needs solving is almost certainly upstream of the problem or opportunity that you're actually seeing. And so like typically it, it's not uncommon that we see an organization where there's been a bright idea start from the top of, oh, we want to use machine learning to, to you know, I don't know, improve our customer satisfaction or something. And you look at it and say, well, actually, yeah, sure, there is potentially an opportunity there, but machine learning is the least of your problems. The first thing you need to do is maybe just get your data governance sorted about who owns the data and then some really basic data engineering, data management sorted and so forth. So basically this idea that, yes, there may be an interesting, uh, sexy opportunity, but like quite possibly there's going to be some expensive, difficult grunt work to be done upstream. In the case of this project with RMIT, I think we are lucky that because of the investment that had been done um, by Burning Glass themselves to collect this data, but also by NAS, when we already come into the project, we'd invested heavily in our own data warehouse to combine the ABS data with the education data and the burning glass data all in a consistent approach. That was what made it possible to do at all. The third thing I'll say maybe is just that when it comes to technical implementation of analytics projects, it's really critical that you have something comparable to what we call the NAUS process for data intensive projects. So Microsoft had this thing they call the team data science process. It's very similar, but it's all just about having processes for your quality control, your version control, making sure you're using the right data, the team's working together efficiently and um, so forth. And the final point I say is maybe just uh, have a clear understanding of how the data needs that you're looking at fit into a broader data strategy and in particular, a change strategy for how you're going to change the way that you use data and that you're aware of the trade-offs between things like quick wins versus deeper investments or do we need specialist capability or you just need all the data available more broadly for, for everyone. And yeah, so th those are some general thoughts. 
And Eloise, if I can give the last word to you, RMIT is clearly not alone in facing challenges on course development. What advice would you give to other higher education providers that are keen to use data but aren't sure where to start? I think um, Peter's right. You've got to invest in the capability. You've got to, um, you know, not just go into things thinking that, you know, consultants going to come and, and solve your problems. You've got to provide that in-house capability to be able to constantly, um, you know, refine and, and be the custodians of that information because, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it should be something that's set and forget and it shouldn't be something that just sits on the shelf or sits in a dashboard and, and isn't used. It should be um, owned and should be alive. Um, the other thing I'd say is develop the business questions, make sure your use cases are nice and succinct and that you're asking yourself the why before you're asking yourself the how. So not just jumping straight to a like a technical or a technology-based solution as, um, you know, for example, straight to machine learning when maybe that wasn't what was required. If you're focusing on the why of why you need this information and how you're going to use it, then you can focus on how the best way to develop that information is. Um, and I would also suggest to other universities, engage your community to showcase, I guess, and signal to the wider community why we should use data to drive decision making, but actually how we build a decision making culture and using this as one of the inputs. Eloise Boyd and Peter Ellis, thanks for talking to Nowscast. Thank you. Thank you. That was Eloise Boyd, the Director of Market Intelligence and Proposition at RMIT, along with Peter Ellis, the NAUS Chief Data Scientist. You can connect with Peter via LinkedIn, and you can read more about an array of NAUS projects on our website. That's www.nowsgroup.com. We'll put links in the episode notes. That's it for this edition of Nowscast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you next time.